1: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of The Remnant, um, which is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media, which you can find at thedispatch.com, where you can sign up for um, all of our wares. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Mrs. Field's Cookies. More about that in a little <laughs> bit. Uh, who doesn't like cookies? Um, so you probably know if you looked in your feed um, that this is a, a sort of a different kind of episode. Uh, I ha- I'm actually... In what I would would have once called behind enemy lines, uh, but no more, uh, at Reason Magazine, I'm in their studio. Um, it's amazing. It's like a, a bar mitzvah, at Caligula's palace out in the editorial <laughs> suite. Um, and uh, I'm interviewing Nick Gillespie. Who? What is your title now?
2: I am editor at large. Uh-huh. I used to be an editor at large. Yeah, now it's it's a good place to be. Yeah. It's
1: it's you have. All the freedom to kibitz and complain and point out better things, but no responsibility to see anything actually carried out.
2: Uh, that is pretty accurate. We used to talk about it in terms of, you know, th- there are staff that load diapers and staff that change diapers. Uh-huh. An editor at large is loading diapers. Yeah.
1: that's I like it. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, uh, and we're going to sort of pick up where we left off. Maybe not exactly where we left
2: yeah. off, because we were talking... What were we talking about? Um, I think we had straight into conversations about Star Wars. And the Mandalorian
1: yeah, and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. That's right. Um, are do you still keep up on sci-fi? Uh,
2: somewhat. I've become... Uh, I really dislike... I've always disliked Star Trek, other than uh-huh. the original series. And I'm a big... I'm not a Star Trek fan. I'm a William Shatner fan. Uh-huh. So I. So there TJ. is someone who comes see, out that way. That's I see T.J. Hooker as like everything is moving up to and away from T.J. Hooker. Uh-huh.
1: Um, Does that include the Gremlin episode of, yeah. of oh, yeah. Twilight and, Zone? and the
2: Esperanto movie he t- oh, yeah, recorded yeah, yeah, yeah. in the mid-60s. What about
1: the spoken word uh, uh, rendition of Rocket Man? Again?
2: Yeah, uh, you know what? I'll tell you this. That is great, and I remember seeing that live with my brother. This would have been Seriously? sometime in the late 70s. It was on a, a, a syndicated science fiction awards program and it was just called like ladies and gentlemen the science fiction awards program really hosted by Bill Shatner and Bernie Taupin comes out the, uh-huh. the, the lyricist the rocket man and says like you know when Elton John and I did the rocket man it was a big hit with the kids here is William Shatner <laughs> doing his dramatic reading of it and I'm sorry can I curse on your podcast
0: I'd rather you didn't uh, but we can try and beep it out
2: so it's uh, and then Shatner did this and my brother who's a huge science fiction guy is a few years older than me we looked at that and we are like did we just see that and then There was another kid in our neighborhood who was into science fiction, and the next day at the bus stop or whatever, we were like, you know, like, did we imagine that? And then it was gone because this was the 70s, so there was no on-demand culture. There was no reruns. There was no VCRs yet. And um, I used that thing when, when Napster came out as a file unauthorized file sharing uh-huh. service in the late 90s. The first thing I did, I was like, I wonder if they have Rocketman by William Shatner. And like within a day of Napster starting, there were like five versions. I was like, <laughs> That's this awesome. is great. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. freedom. And when YouTube started, I did the same thing. And yeah. they actually had the footage. And I sent it around to my friend and my brother. And I was like... You know, we didn't dream it. Yeah, but. so it's
1: funny you mentioned this, because I have a very similar experience with something somewhat related. Um, I was in—I was out of high school. I was backpacking with a buddy of mine and in Europe, and we were at a hotel, and, uh, and there's this video that comes on the TV that was a claymation video of Star Trek. And... Mm the song it's called star trekking star okay. trekking across the universe yeah allegedly by a band called the firm but i don't think it's the same firm the, okay, so yeah. it's not
2: jimmy page and I, Paul. I,
1: yeah or i so. gotta go check because yeah. it, it's like every and like for years yeah. if we hadn't both seen it yeah um, we would have just assumed it was an halluc- hallucination, and um, but you could—I believe you can—we'll put it in the show notes because it's got to be on YouTube.
2: Yeah, no, uh, this is another more recent one of those. I uh, remembered I, I went to grad school from 1988 to 1990 at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I was watching with a friend of mine a Arnold Schwarzenegger Christmas special that had uh, Randy Travis, Danny DeVito, because it came out when Twins was coming out. So it was Danny DeVito, Randy Travis, Barbara Mandrell. Mike Tyson uh-huh. and a bunch of Special Olympic athletes, yeah. because he was married to uh, uh, Maria Shriver, whose mother started the uh, Special Olympics, and it is like everything you can imagine. It's better than the Star Wars Christmas. Battle, yeah, which is which, special. Which is pretty fantastic. Yeah, right? when B. Arthur is singing songs after the Star Wars Cantina closes. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Um, so. I remember explaining that to a couple of people and they were like, you're making that up. Like where Arnold is working out with special Olympic athletes who are making fun of him, uh-huh. uh, where Mike Tyson is like, you know, <laughs> shadow boxing with Barbara Mandrell or something. And everybody was like, you're making that up. And it was the hardest freaking thing to find online because Schwarzenegger, who has immense power, scrubbed it from everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's out there. Look for it.
1: It's okay. So yeah. uh, just cause you reminded me of something that I may have imagined. Um, but there was a, commercial in the 80s for the Bronx zoo where the voiceover is something along the lines you see you see like a, a gorilla or an orangutan in a field and the voiceover is they left me alone and he walks closer to the camera i've had to make my way here not knowing whatever and walks closer to the camera someday they'll come back for me and he looks skyward as if looking for a rocket, and then just closes the Bronx Zoo. Wow! And, I, and it was so trippy. And yeah. I've looked on YouTube a million times for this thing that sounds great. because my imagination may have gotten the. Yeah. It's been so long; I might have been high. Who knows? You know. Yeah. So um,
2: now but, you uh, might have been high. Were you? You don't smoke pot anymore, do
0: you? New, do you? New,
2: do you no, Do would you? Would you admit it if you did? Um, I'd be reluctant to, but I,
1: I, I, I was never a good. me um, on. This, I paid for this microphone Mr. Greene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh um I weed was never really my yeah. thing. Um and uh, cuz there are people who get really social with weed, mm-hmm. I get really introspective yeah. and um
2: so you may have dreamed it. Then. It's possible. Not, yeah, it's possible. I
1: nice. dream some weird stuff. Yeah. So, um all right so we uh, okay, we yeah, should you, get back to yes. like some some substance here. Yeah. Um so, um, uh, tell me about well, just just you asked me all these questions earlier about you mm-hmm. know the state of conservatism and
2: in the era of Donald Trump.
1: In the era of Donald Trump, and it reminded me, i didn't say this on, on our thing—but uh, a radio show host once asked me back when right-wing radio hosts would still have me on, "Would William F. Buckley recognize today's Republican Party?" And um, I said, "Well, you know." Charlton Heston recognized the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes. (laughs) Recognition is not a really high bar.
0: Um, Well, can
2: I? I I don't um, mean to turn that away, but uh um, what would Buckley think? Because my understanding, when you guys had your 50th anniversary party in Mm -hmm. D.C., which I... And this was a a moment of uh, understanding for me of where libertarians fit in the modern right. Uh uh, The reason table was... Way, way, way in the back, and like ten rows earlier, closer to the stage, was the log cabin Republicans. Is that right? Like, holy cow, we're way in the hinterlands compared to the gays. Yeah, like we really are on the outs. Um, but my understanding was at least they were Republicans. Buckley, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> um but that, uh, and they believe in marriage. I yeah. guess, right. Um, but. Um, you know, that Buckley was kind of disappointed in the way National Review and the conservative movement had faded. And like at that dinner, it was odd. Stan Evans, St- uh-huh. M. Stanton Evans was the co-host and it was one of Buckley's last public appearances. And they were really sour. And it was odd because George W. Bush had just won reelection. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a magazine that more than any, you know, it's it's amazing how National Review went from zero readers in 1955 mm-hmm. to electing Ronald Reagan, reconfiguring the American political landscape, and we had just locked into it. I think David Brooks at the time was claiming was a permanent governing majority for Republicans. Yeah, that worked out. Yeah, but and it, you know, I mean, was Buckley disenchanted with the way National Review and the conservative movement
0: had had? Been you know,
1: I I. I... I honestly don't know. I knew Bill oh. pretty well, um, not as well as some other people at N.R., certainly not like Rick Brookreiser, who knew him for a quarter century. But um, Bill did have a melancholy side to him yeah. and a dyspeptic side to him. And um, I, you know, this is the what would Bill Buckley do right. conversation is a common one on the right. Uh, there are a lot of people who think he would be all in for Trump. I think that's ludicrous. Yeah, that
2: seems totally right. Yeah.
1: I think at the very minimum he would make a sort of a binary choice kind yeah. of argument and all that kind of stuff um but you know bill buckley belie- really believed in good manners even when he yeah. was saying things that yeah. were offensive to people yeah, he yeah. believed in in being in doing it in a well-mannered way and so yeah. trump's style alone would probably have really bothered him and and you know buckley made his career criticizing republican politicians from yeah. you know I, certainly Eisenhower, but you know his relationship yeah. with Nixon was frosty. Yeah, that has been,
2: if I'm remembering correctly, National Review didn't endorse Richard Nixon for president in 1960. I think that's right. Yeah.
1: Um, and so, uh, my guess is he would have had a sort of a, a, a nuanced and Buckley esque position on a lot of these things. Right. Um And he didn't like Yahooism very much. So, so. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he, he. Um, you know by the end he was very ill from the emphysema and all that kind of stuff so i i, I i'm not sure i would extrapolate from one evening right. i mean one of the one of his bizarre gifts was to write brutally honest obituaries yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, you know it takes a certain personality type to be yeah, willing no, I to, to, remember, be able to do that uh,
2: there's still a lot of libertarian feathers ruffled uh, when murray rothbard died and i'm not particularly fan of murray rothbard he yeah. wrote a obituary uh where he said something like i uh you know, semi regrets to his immediate family, but not the movement he inspired. yeah, and it was I mean it was very nasty, yeah no he uh, did you know, he did some know. of that stuff um, at the same time, I was gonna say, um you know, and this is um you know it's odd to pull Buckley because he was such a um effective and fierce polemicist. Also, we could use more people like him. One of the things that is amazing about firing line as well as many yeah. other appearances he made where he would talk to people. That he disagreed with completely or almost completely or would arrange an array of voices. Yeah. Noam Chomsky. You know, all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. No. And one of my favorite episodes of Firing Line, um, it is uh, Ed Sanders of the Fugs, Jack Kerouac, and an academic I can't remember. And it's like about the hippies or something. And it's just – it's, like, amazing. Yeah. You know? Although Kerouac yeah. was a National Review subscriber. Uh, I, no, and he gave his last major interview to National Review yeah. before he died. And, I, I mean, he was – let me put it this way. He didn't represent conservative values very well. He was drunk off his ass and was speaking in, you know, his Quebecois French yeah. you know, for but, a good part of the evening. But, you
1: know, yeah. We have our own levels of diversity. So uh, Yeah. Uh, so uh, – enough about you know my shambolic yes. side all right explain to me the state of the libertarian is it a movement is it a community yeah. is
2: well it, yeah. so i'll tell you you know one of the things there's no question that conservatives and republicans because trump is a republican obviously not a conservative but he is carrying that mantle there's a lot of fighting over trump is he does he represent us is he not you know there's a lot of fractures mm-hmm. going on i would say within the libertarian movement. Um, there, It's um, interesting, like small-l libertarians, some are very pro-Trump mm-hmm. uh, because they think he is burning everything down. And right. that, you know, green shoots, you know, it's that I, – I suspect uh, – I wasn't around at the time, but when Planet of the Apes came out, there were probably some libertarians who were like, oh, that's good that they blew up the earth because whatever comes next will be better. You know, this uh-huh. is amenitizing the eschaton or yeah, something yeah. Um, There are libertarians who are like, we can work with him or not work with him, but work with the world he's creating. Uh, And then there are people who are so anti like so never Trump Mm -hmm. that they can't talk about, you know, a good piece of fish that they have without talking about how much better it would have been if Donald Trump had never been elected Uh, and who are actively, I think, working for. A Democrat to win because that is the alternative to Donald Trump and that is preferable to another four years of Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, I find myself um, increasingly well there are two things one in terms of politics Somebody like Donald Trump is a really brutal, clarifying agent. He's, mm-hmm. he's an emetic. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. like Syrup of Ipecac or yeah. a diuretic in American politics. Uh, a while ago, I likened him to the uh, the main character in Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. It's a character <laughs> named Hickey, a traveling salesman who comes around once or twice a year to this bar in the, in the Lower East Side of New York. And there's a bunch of barflies who are all lying to themselves about their grand plans. And he will come through and systematically make them admit they are never going to leave this bar and they're never going to get their sh** or anything. <laughs> and in the the context of the play, spoiler alert, at the very end after he does this in, in really great, you know, nasty form, he reveals that he has killed his wife and he's marched off by the police and he's an insane man. <laughs> I think Donald Trump is Hickey from the Ice Band Cometh. And that's not a bad thing. Like anything he does, he's, he's a horrible human being, but he could have a very good effect on American politics. In terms Sorry, of, so play that out for me. So he's forcing people to own their positions about stuff, because uh-huh. like so, uh, for instance, for libertarians, he is kind of forcing us to really own, like, do we believe in absolute free trade or not? Um, do we believe in um, getting out of foreign countries and mm-hmm. things like that? He's forcing people to say, like, you know, when he—his deep state critique is something that libertarians and certain elements on the left have been saying for years. Sure, like the and FBI, certain elements the on the, the right, FBI, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Department of Justice, you know, these are— unbelievably corrupt organizations etc like he's he's making a lot of people own things one of the great moments in a recent democratic debate democratic candidate debate was somebody said like well you know what are you against Donald Trump's tariffs and like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and all these people had to be like no I hate Donald Trump but I would never get rid of I you know the difference between me and Donald Trump is I will never end tariffs against China because I believe in protectionism mm-hmm. you know full stop Trump is at least claiming when he accomplishes whatever goal he set, he'll you know he, he's a free trade guy. Uh-huh. You know if if the other people are playing fair, I think um, you know I think in that sense, Trump. Uh, you know it, it, again, I I don't support him. I don't see him as the end of the world. He's not the fifth horseman of the apocalypse yeah. or anything. But he is making us take account of what we really believe. Um, a lot of libertarians say. You know uh they're happy for him to be impeached, and we should impeach more presidents i I find that like a fatuous statement to mm-hmm. be quite honest. I argue with my colleagues a lot about it, and um you know I think he but he's also making me say like, well, you know like I don't think he should be impeached I, I don't think he should be removed for, from office for what he's been accused of so far." Mm-hmm. But it's also like, well, maybe government isn't something that is always terrible, like there are better and worse versions of government. I think he's he's forcing an accounting on the libertarian side that can be very helpful to the intellectual dimensions of libertarianism. Okay.
1: So that's interesting. Um, I'm still not sure I see it because like one of the grave concerns I have is, uh, you know, there's, what's his name? Um, Cal... Cranston, the California senator from Alan Wolf? Cranston, yeah, remember the I, guy? It looks yeah.
2: like a deathbed. Yeah, there's a
1: great uh, sort of um, Skeletor with emphysema kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, totally, so totally, he yeah. Uh, he um, had this great line during I think Watergate hearings. I quoted every couple of years um, where he says, "You know, my friends on the right always said we should be worried about this presidential abuse of power yeah. and stuff, and I never listened to them, but maybe they were right that it's yeah. bad." Blah 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 yeah. blah blah. Um, the the next if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie right. Sanders, are, they are not going to um, return us to regular order. No, so they are going not, to yeah. pocket yeah. all of these deviations from the norm and say, "Well, they got to use them, so we right. get to use them, right?" Yeah, yeah, and
2: and in fact, that's part of what Trump is saying. You know that uh, you know Obama did this and that, et cetera, and uh, you know, and uh, let me put it this way: part of I. Um, I interviewed Judge Napolitano, you uh-huh. know, who's the last, liberta- like, hardcore libertarian at Fox News. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, every president is worse than the previous one because they get all of the power that their colleagues in Congress granted them, plus whatever new ones they get granted. And, um, you know, so Trump is the worst president, by de- you know, by Napolitano's definition, and he's a mass power. I don't think it's critical yet in the sense that every time he's been told to stop, Mm -hmm. You know, he hasn't pulled an Andrew Jackson yet. Sure. Um, And that because he doesn't know what he's doing, which is maybe, maybe not. But I mean, I I believe in institutions. Um, And I also I I guess where I was going with this, though, is that um, Trump is forcing. um, I think he forces people to kind of sit, go all the way through, like when you agree with him on Mm -hmm. something. Like, you really have to think through, like, why do I agree with this? And is, and can I separate it from this kind of loathsome character? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so. And he, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, right. but what are podcasts for, if not yeah. to ramble? Yeah. Um, you know, he has done stuff from a libertarian perspective, which is quite good. Uh, you know, things like criminal justice sure. reform. He, in 2016, against Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was not going to, said she would not sign legislation that would make marijuana legal or decriminalize trump said you know what if congress wants to return that to the states he doesn't you know he was fine with that it's yeah. like in many ways he's advanced certain things the tax bill that he put forward it's terrible in the context of he's still spending more money than we're bringing in but he actually did a bunch of things that make absolute sense, like changing the way that uh, taxes collected on a worldwide basis for Americans, uh, changing certain depreciation schedules, um, getting rid of the state and local tax deduction. Good for him. I, yeah. I Unfortunately, I moved from a relatively low tax place to New York City, so yeah. I'm, I'm still paying for that. But, you know, these are things that are not such – you know, they're not terrible.
1: Yeah. No, look, I, I, I agree with that. There's yeah. a lot of that stuff I support. Um I, I always bristle a little bit, and this is a point that I made before mm. Trump was president, where we anything good that happens on the president's watch, he gets the credit for right. it. Right. Sure. And this is really Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell saying, yeah. "Here's a fait accompli. Sign it." And he said, "Okay," because he didn't
2: yeah, care. Yeah, but I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, we, Paul Ryan is, by the way, uh, one of the the biggest disappointments in in American political history. I think. But uh, I, you know what? I don't want to get dragged. Down uh-huh. that yeah, either. I don't, I don't want, want to go down that alley so. either Uh, because it doesn't matter anymore. But having said that, yeah, like Trump, you know, Trump should get credit for the things that presidents get credit for. Then they almost never deserve them. I guess this goes to my longer uh, answer to the question about what's up with libertarian stuff today or what am I thinking. One of the things, uh, I I believe in institutions, I believe in structures, I believe in, you know, having, uh, showing your math, Mm -hmm. you know, in everything you do. And one of the reasons Virginia Postrel, who's I know you're friendly with Mm -hmm. her, she ran some of your stuff in Reason way back in the day. She's the one who hired me. One of the ways she taught journalism, and I think this is very much what Reason aspires to do, is, like, when you make an argument, you give all of your, you know, your sources, your your thinking, like, you make it yeah. all plain so people can say, okay, that makes sense. Or, like, here, you made a mistake right. here. And, you know, um, I... Believe in structures, I believe in process, I believe in all of that kind of stuff, because I think that's what liberalism you know classical liberalism is all about really is kind of um, rationalizing a lot of processes so that people can't just get away with whim and claim that it's mm-hmm. divine law or anything like that. Having said that, I think that government ultimately it's about pre political feelings and that we get the government that we deserve mm-hmm. and Americans have wanted I love it a government when you, you know that's
1: yeah. that's joseph de maestro who first said yeah that. i know which yeah, is so, believe me so libertarians I, 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 for counter enlightenment yeah, reactionaries no,
2: who <laughs> is, yeah who is, he's he's the bottom of the way. i mean we've argued about this he's the guy that when hayek said i am not a conservative he was pointing directly yeah at exactly right. um, but you know we do live in a representative government and we we have for a long time and it's only getting worse we've said we want a government that you know, spends much, much more than it ever takes in. Uh, we all sorts of things, and I see libertarian at this point. And when I say libertarian, like I don't say I am a libertarian. I say I have libertarian uh, sentiments or tendencies. I tend to think of it as an adjective and as a direction that we move towards. It's a default setting that always gives the individual more freedom and more choice in whatever we're talking about. It can be overridden mm-hmm. in in particular cases. Um, but it is a pre-political and certainly a pre-partisan mm-hmm. sensibility that is like, do you want to live in a world that is less controlled and less centralized or or more kind of chaotic or anarchic and decentralized? I'm not an anarchist. I believe in government. I believe it just should be a lot smaller and it should be rule-bound. Um, but... Uh, that's what I think Trump is also helping to kind of clarify because you know people who get bent out of shape over Trump and who are apoplectic about him it seems odd to me you know because they were this way about Obama and they were this way about Bush like why is Trump special he isn't he is his own uniquely horrible president mm-hmm. but I don't know that he's a qualitatively different monster than Obama or Bush
1: okay I one of the advantages and disadvantages of being a libertarianism being a libertarian is that you're on such a far shore that yeah, the, oh, yeah. the gradations where, of the landscape there past Pluto yeah. right so the gradations of landscape don't seem all that dramatic to you yeah. from such a distance but right. um, from up close, I think there there's some remarkable differences, and and look, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that Obama but, uh, did that drove me crazy. But yeah,
2: but and and remember, like we, you know, we both, I'm sure personally, and if not us personally, like are are the 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 posse's that we rolled with mm-hmm. or whatever. We're talking about Obama as history's greatest monster. Yeah, yeah you know yeah, that yeah. he contravened yeah. all of the norms and he, yeah. he used all. You know, he just broke the law when it when he couldn't finesse it. And people were saying that about Bush Hitler back in the day and all of that. And there's some truth to it all. But it's like, I guess for me, the way that we get back to uh, a place where politics and government is in its right size in the whole of human life Mm -hmm. um, is like we need to have a libertarian consciousness raising, which happens way before. You decide what party you're voting for or anything like that. And it really is about saying, you know what, I believe that individuals all have a certain amount of dignity and, and a certain amount of right to live their lives the way uh-huh. they want to. And then a lot of other things have to proceed from that.
1: Yeah. No, look, that, that's, <clears throat> that's all fine. I just yeah. think when you take that sentiment, which I, I've i moved I've become more and more a fan of Height's Moral Foundation stuff, right. and I've changed my view about intellectual history in a lot of ways, but... Um, when you actually get to the punditry part of that, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of wish casting in what you're doing. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but so we're talking about partisanship right. and libertarians. Um, um, can you give listeners a short précis on the relationship between Reason Magazine and the Libertarian Party?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so the uh, Reason Magazine was founded in 1968 um, by a guy who... Was a uh, Ayn Rand fan. He was an objectivist. That's why the magazine is called Reason. Mm-hmm. Rand thought Reason is the thing that made humans human. You're not a Randian. I am not, no. And uh, by the time, uh, no. And uh, Virginia certainly wasn't. The first few editors of Reason were kind of objectivists. And, and even Lanny Friedlander, the guy I founded, was not a Randian. Mm-hmm. He was interested in objectivism, whatever. Uh, But in any case, so Reason was founded in 1968 as a magazine of ideas, and it was modeled uh, in in its early kind of uh, statements about what it was trying to do. It talked about trying to be like National Review Mm -hmm. for libertarians or the nation or whatever. Um, The Libertarian Party was founded in 1971, and it's a political party. We don't have any official connection with them. Mm -hmm personally, uh, you know, and we're run by a nonprofit, so we can't specifically endorse sure. candidates or particular ballot initiatives, et cetera. There are many ways that you obviously can show support or, you know, common sensibilities with and all of that. So I, we take a special interest in the Libertarian Party, sure. but we are not of it. Of my colleagues, and I've been at Reason now like 26 years, I think, so it's a long freaking time. Um, I don't even know if any of them are members of the LP. Uh I probably registered as a libertarian sometime in the 80s when I first was able to vote, but I'm not a member now. Uh Um, And so... I voted I, for Andre Maru in 1992. Uh, yeah. No, was, uh, he once took me to dinner, so there you, uh, you go. know, he would have gotten my vote, but it, this uh-huh. was long after his politics had ended. And I was I was bullish, uh I don't know if this gets to topic that you're interested in talking about on the Johnson Weld campaign. I was uh-huh. bullish. I ultimately they did not perform as strongly as I would have liked. Um but, you know, the, I thought they were you know, they kind of showed an alternative that was certainly not Hillary Clinton was mm-hmm. not Donald Trump. And, um, you know, I kind of like that. The Libertarian Party now is going through a weird moment where a lot of people think that Johnson and Weld, who tripled the number of votes that was ever gotten, they you know, they got like 3.3 percent of the general general Uh vote and all that, that it was the biggest disaster ever in party history. uh, Because as somebody whose podcast is named The Remnant, Uh you, you can appreciate people who the one thing that they hate more than being completely ignored as actually having any measure of success. Yeah, yeah. Relevance you know, yeah. is yeah. terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, they are the Libertarian Party now is going through a thing where they almost certainly will end up uh, nominating somebody who is a total purist. Uh-huh. And they will go back down, I would tend to believe, to getting 500,000 votes yeah. in the next election, where they should actually be onward and upward. Again, I don't really care about politics. I care about... Um, The kind of sensibilities that end up informing politics as well as things like, um, you know, uh, religion or social experiments and and Uh literature and things like that. So I'm not too bent out of shape over that.
1: Is your sense that, though, that it always seemed to me that one of the things you judge political movements, ones actually engaged in politics, right? right? Um, Isn't so much what they say, but what they prioritize, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like. Yeah. And it seemed to me that certainly in the 90s and into the 2000s the Libertarian Party may have been for the privatization of lighthouses and right, electric yeah. utilities but Finally. they were but they were really about legalizing weed. Yeah, and uh, or drugs. Yeah, probably. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think that was a big uh, issue and it's you know it it's um fascinating to me because I say this as somebody who um, I no longer drink. I don't smoke weed. I take a lot of psychedelics. Uh, uh-huh. And I, so I still use drugs. And I also use a lot of legal drugs that when, I, when I need to and things like that. Um, it's always been interesting to me that uh, libertarians, you know, they talk a lot about guns and drugs. And yeah. Like those two things, <laughs> you know, like you don't necessarily want to be doing those two things at the same time. But, right. Um, and those priorities probably have hurt the movement. Uh, both as a political party and as a kind of social movement, uh, because it turns out that with drugs, the people who are into drug legalization, and I think that I think the war on drugs is one of the. Uh, most purely evil things that the uh, that America has has done, you know, it's mm-hmm. up there with Indian genocide and and slavery, uh, and certain types of anti-immigrant policies that came on board, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, but the way that we tended to talk about it was probably drove more people away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that relatively few people care about the drug issue, per se. The people who do are really intense. Right. So it's you know. Um, that's a—it's uh, it's an interesting question for me because it's—we also now live in an age, though, and this is something that I was thinking about with the last Democratic debate. None of, the, none of the people on stage were remotely libertarian, but they all agreed with a bunch of stuff— that was very libertarian, and and among that was uh, things like criminal justice reform, uh, drug legalization. Everybody believes in marijuana legalization, and that's either from a moral, what might be called a moral perspective, saying that you know I have a right to grow my own body, or from a pragmatic thing, which is just that the cost-benefit analysis of prohibiting pot, um, it's it's a bad. Investment mm-hmm. that we should be making. There are better ways to go about doing stuff, and we're you know we're in in many profound ways we're in a libertarian world, but we'll, it will never be acknowledged as such. And I can live with that. I can live with a world where people aren't going to jail or um, you know getting in trouble for using an intoxicant that one day was legal and the next day is not, like ecstasy, MDMA. You know was legal up until a certain point, like in eighty five, eighty six, then it wasn't. You know. I'm glad that we're moving towards legalizing more things. I'm glad that more people can legally get married and hence legally get divorced. Um, you, know, I, you know, people are more chill about all sorts of things. I think people are more comfortable with different types of businesses, mm-hmm. um, you know, and different types of um, living conditions and all of that. So, you know, that's all good. And weirdly, like the Democrats who want to destroy the last vestiges of capitalism, which is a really, really big problem – are also pretty libertarian on a lot of issues, as is Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, so um, I don't want to get into the drug war stuff, just because yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been around that horn a million times. Um, um, but this does sort of work, The stuff I'm sort of, you know, as a back story, um, yeah. uh, early on in my tenure at National Review Online, I got into a lot of fights with libertarians. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem was I was particularly hated by a group of libertarians who were of the Lou Rockwell bent. Okay. Right? And I've always found, you know, the... And not everybody who wrote for them was a bad guy. Right, there, are, right. there are some serious people who wrote there and all the rest and all the kind of stuff. for l- Listeners who don't know. com was a big deal in the early Internet. And it was a libertarian thing, very von Misesian, yeah. based out of the University of Alabama uh, or, no, or no, the periphery Auburn. of it. They, they live
2: in Auburn. Uh-huh. Um, they are not affiliated with Auburn University, but that's where the Mises Institute is, uh-huh. which has taken on the name um, of Ludwig von Mises, who, in, in a shocking bit of irony, I mean, because... Uh, the Lou Rockwell crowd and the Mises Institute mostly is very interested in kind of localism. They have a lot of sympathy for the Confederacy right. and like old times. And their namesake—I mean, you know—the Mises Institute, Ludwig von Mises, is the kind of archetypal um, wandering Jew cosmopolitan right. who loved the city. And here these guys are talking about autarky in Auburn, Alabama, of all places. And it's, I
1: and I just always thought that yeah. that, that the in, in the world of great oxymorons, uh, libertarians for slavery was always one of the great ones, right? Yeah,
2: I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, well, and and Lou Rockwell, who also was a, I think he was the legislative uh, chief of staff for Ron Paul, right. Back in the seventies, in his first stint in Congress and things like that, was identified um, as one of the uh, authors of the Ron Paul newsletters that right. caused the huge stink, as they should have, because they were
1: full of uh, racist garbage. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: and. Uh, Rockwell, actually, and this this is a dividing line, certainly between me and him. He famously wrote a piece after um, Rodney King was beaten by the LAPD. He wrote uh-huh. a piece in the LA Times saying, you know, like, when I look at that, I'm not afraid of the LAPD. I'm afraid of Rodney King. And uh-huh. it's kind of like, wow, that is amazing, especially for a guy who claims to be speaking about, you know, who's worried about state power above right. all else. And it's like, yeah, um, so... I am not sure where you're going with. Yeah,
1: no, 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 I'm not, I'm not yeah. trying to do a guilt by association. Oh, no, just no, no, I'm not saying so, that.
2: It's for me, you know, there is, and I think this is probably true in all ideologies. There is a kind of populist bent or a kind of localist versus. Uh, globalist or cosmopolitan mm-hmm. i mean I'm, I'm a libertarian who is called a you know a cosmetarian or a mm-hmm. an orange uh, mo- orange line mafia etc mm-hmm. despite the fact that i've spent most of the past 20 years living in a small town in ohio um you know i am a globalist i'm a rootless cosmopolitan I, i'm a rooted cosmopolitan oh. i i was born in brooklyn i grew up in new jersey i love where i'm from i love local culture but i also love you know uh, kind of the ability to change who you are all the time. I see this very much as what libertarianism is about and and certainly Ludwig von Mises, the idea that you, and, and this was a bone of contention between you and me mm-hmm. when John Walker Lind came out. I, yeah, yeah. I believe that you do get to pick and choose your cultures and that you're constantly creating your own uh, uh, sense of identity and sense of culture almost minute by minute and then you end up casting back and saying no no it was always this way mm-hmm. I mean I think the Catholic Church does that every bit as much as a libertarian but I, and I celebrate the current moment because we actually have so many more tools where we can see what other people are doing and mimic them or communicate with them and hybridize and mongrelize with them yeah
1: so one, one the reason I just bring it up is yep. that it took me years of walking back some of the things I said because there were blanket statements about libertarianism. Mm-hmm. when really what I was doing was aiming at a very sp- specific subset yeah, of okay. them. And, and, um, but it, it sort of highlighted for me uh, who's the guy who ran for libertarian president in 2000, do you remember? Or was it 2004? Harry Brown. Maybe it was Harry Brown. I got into a long exchange with him on mm-hmm. National Review Online where he kept making this argument um, which I've heard from many libertarians right. since then. The libertarianism is the only consistent political oh, philosophy, right? right, right? Yeah, yeah. And First of all, consistency is wildly overrated. Yeah. There's a lot of consistency to Marxism and jihadism yeah, and yeah, Nazism. Yeah. No, right?
2: no, I agree right. that consistency for its own sake is yeah, –
1: And it's also just flatly not true. The more yeah. you get to know libertarians is that um, they – a lot of the stereotypes about Jews apply to libertarians. You get 10 libertarians in a room, you get 11 positions and people right.
2: – they argue amongst themselves – all the the one time. big difference is that the Jews run the world. That's right, and the libertarian stuff.
1: Well, no, but according to uh, Holly and Tucker and these guys, oh, yeah, libertarians yeah. do in no, fact run everything. That is true. Yeah. that's
2: true. So I guess we should take that win. Um, but
1: so you know, so the other place I come from the, the three sources of my libertarianism, other than mm. like reading, um, was one that experience. Two was doing deep dives on fusionism and where conservatism right ideas come from, and third was that. Uh, a one of our both mutual very close yep. friends, Ron Bailey, I used to work with him, and we used to get into lots of arguments right. about libertarianism, and he helped me on a lot of these things. So, but one of the things that I think has been remarkable in the last 20 years among people who call themselves libertarians is the old libertarian argument of the National Review Frank Meyer variety, mm-hmm. which originally came around as called individualism, right? right? Um, was, and that was sort of the right-wing libertarianism, Mm -hmm. um, uh, was very much framed in terms of negative liberty, right? right? Uh, The state has no right to intrude on these things. My rights to a gun, my rights to religion are prior to the power of the state. The Bill of Rights are all framed in the negative. Um, And in the last 20 years, there has been a growing strain of thought. That libertarianism could be defined as as having a great comfort with positive liberty, hmm. and one of the one of okay. the sort of touchstone pieces about this was a column you wrote for Reason. I don't know, like fifteen years ago, ten all years right. ago, where you talked about how you were much happier in the city, you felt freer oh, yeah, in the yeah. city, and all of these kinds oh, of that, things. But
2: that that was not a positive liberty argument at all, and I'll, I'll, I, that was you know controversial. Uh, this was something that I uh, realized when I was living in Huntsville, Texas, uh-huh. which is a prison town about 80 miles north of Houston. I was not in the prison. Um, my uh, now ex-wife was teaching at Sam Houston State University. so, uh-huh. um, And there were houses there that were like basically brand new uh, that were five-bedroom houses that were going for like 80 grand. And yeah. they couldn't sell that like nobody wanted to move there so and you know we talk a lot about the cost of living we don't talk about the demand for living there was like virtually no demand for living in huntsville because Mm -hmm. it was a bunch of supermax prisons and the death chamber in texas uh which we moved there in 96 and uh in half a year there had been a stay of executions for a number of years that was just lifted they executed something like 42 people in six months i mean Mm -hmm. it was like amazing you uh, nobody wanted to live there yeah um, and at the time, libertarians, and I think a lot of business-friendly conservatives talk a lot about this, how, like, you know, if you just, you know, uh, take away taxes and regulations, like, people will flock to Kansas. And mm-hmm. this was um, – it was Forbes and, like, uh, Pacific Research Institute or something had just come out with a a, um, a study saying, you know, Kansas had the best uh, environment for business. Right. So, you know, expect people to move there. And I was like, no, like, you're, you're getting it all wrong that – What I learned living in, you know, in internal exile in Huntsville, Texas, was that I was more than willing to pay a huge premium to live in a a city like New York or D.C. or Los Angeles, which I had moved from. So none of that had anything to do with positive or negative liberty. It was really about... Um, the um, banality, or or just the thinness of a lot of very economical or econ- homo economicus type thinking mm-hmm. on the right, and especially among libertarians, where they say all you have to do is cut taxes, and everything will flow from that. I don't think that's true.
1: Um, right. Okay. So, but I'll go back and read. It. It's okay. been a while, but yeah. um, but it's one of the reasons why it stuck in my head was the part of the argument was um, these are heavily regulated, heavily. Big mm. government places, New York, yep. DC, and LA, and all the rest. Um, and yet, you have more freedom in yep. a certain way, no, right? No, you, you definitely I, do. I mean, I mean, um, the Arbeiter, yeah. I mean uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Stoffel, what is it? City, City air makes you free. Um, oh, okay. that's, uh, that's, right. Right. that's where Arbeit mocks you fry is different. Uh, yeah, but that's. Yeah, but no, it, but it was, was a callback say, yeah. to that phrase. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, and. There's actually an interesting medieval law. It was basically if you were a serf and you made it to a city and you were there for more than one year, okay. you were officially free now. That's pretty So, hard. like, literally you're and free.
2: And our, our mutual friend, Ron Bailey, who is, you know, one of the, you know, I take responsibility for all the mistakes I've made, but he, one of the great intellectual influences on me, he talks about moving from rural Western Virginia. Right. Can you never say and, West Virginia. Yes. <laughs> and, well, not because of the Civil War, right? Yeah. It's like, um, but coming up through out of the subway in New York for the first time and realizing he was home. And yeah. And it's... There is is a paradox. And I think libertarians need to think more fully and seriously about all of these kinds of paradoxes where, um, you know, you are in many ways more free to live however you define in a city like New York, which is, you know, a libertarian nightmare, uh, you know, where everything is regulated, everything is this. But it's also true at the same time, there is this incredible freedom, uh, because people around there don't care. Or they don't follow the rules. Or, you know, suddenly there are enough people where they get to make rules where they have this temporary autonomous and they can do whatever they want.
1: So um, a few years ago, um, the lovely and talented Catherine Mango Ward yeah. said to me that she was meeting more intern applicants at Reason who were taking the side of the uh, against the gay wedding cake baker and um, I don't know if anybody here takes that position, right? People saying, yeah, the state should force a baker to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, right? right? Where do you come down on
2: that? Yeah, uh, you know, I will say uh, that I I can see situations where it would be legitimate for the state to say, you know, you should provide that service. I think there are very few and far between. And Uh, John McAfee, the Mm -hmm. great insane um, antivirus pioneer who is now somewhere in the Caribbean, like uh, uh, steering clear of uh, uh, federal agents who are searching for him or whatever, in a debate for the Libertarian Party presidential nominee uh, in 2012 or 2016. He, I think, said something that was kind of right, is that if there are alternatives where if you know you you should never you the default should be you don't force businesses you don't force people to um, associate with people if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. But if you were the only bakery in a town that was a thousand miles away from everywhere else, there might be an argument. Yeah, I, I, say, I, I would live with that argument. Yeah, you know, know, and, that's, that's, that, yeah. and I think that's, that's true. a prudential question. What I, you know, so that that's basically my standing on that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think the larger question, um, and when Rand Paul first kind of announced for Senate, he weirdly made that, he made that announcement on Rachel Maddow's MSNBC show, and she immediately started hammering him over the civil rights legislation in the the mid-60s, where, and she got him to say, yeah, you know what, I would not force um, um, lunch counters to be integrated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's like, you know, this argument is a dead one for so many reasons, not Mm -hmm. least of which is that, you know, drugstores don't have lunch counters anymore. So it's like, what the, you know, but, there is a question there, and Ron and other people have written about this. Like, are there are there moments where there are restrictions on people's freedom or ability to participate in life that you know that might be privately, uh, mostly privately established? Are there times where the where the government should come in and say, no, we're going to equalize this or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, and it turns out when you go back and look at the history of things like segregation or, or the refusal to serve certain types of customers, oftentimes It was local laws or local rules. That uh, or or the threat of terrorist violence, where it might not have been against the law to serve a black at a lunch counter, but if you did, you knew that your building was going to be firebombed by the KKK, right. and the the chief of police was a member, etc. Right. You know, it gets complicated pretty quickly, and so I don't think I don't think anybody is really a very few, a vi- nobody has rights to almost anything. I mean, you have a right to be left alone, you have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't think there's a lot of positive rights in that, mm-hmm. um, but. It's also true that when libertarian, you know, I only care about kind of libertarians in this sense. Like when they think about power and when they think about the ability to participate in a meaningful life, I think our um, fixation on government and particularly the federal government is wrong. You know, when the federal government, and you'll hear libertarians talking about this as well as conservatives and some other people you know Eisenhower what a what a piece of garbage he was for sending federal uh, you know national guard troops into uh, integrate Little mm-hmm. Rock high it's like actually that strikes me as a pretty good use of the federal government to counterman a completely illiberal um unconstitutional uh you know a uh, 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 kind of set of actions against blacks yeah. who you know who had certain rights to be in public schools
1: yeah no I, like i mean uh... The Democratic, the 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 Southern slave states and Jim Crow states, um, were democratic tyrannies. Yeah, and they were violating uh, the bill. You know, the, both the spirit and the letter of the Bill of Rights. And the, one of the things the president has the power to do is to stop people from yeah. doing that. So I, I you know, you can talk about. Excesses, you can talk about all these right. kinds of things, but the basic principle I think was a sound one. You know? I
2: now to get to that question of like, oh so are younger libertarians more likely to basically want it all? Like mm-hmm. they want to be left alone when they want to be left alone, but then they want the Are they the becoming Julia's to... <laughs> um, this is a, uh, you know, I think this is a question for American society writ large. Lately, I had started out, um, I you know, I guess I became libertarian because I read Reason in high school. My brother, uh, who had, you know, I watched uh, William Shatner sing Rocket Man with, um, turned me on to Reason. He found it when he went to college, and then I read Free to Choose, etc. Um, I went through a Hayek phase, and now I'm probably more in a Schumpeter phase. And Joseph Schumpeter in his book Capitalism Socialism and Democracy has a great it's it's a um, a kind of generous reading of Freud uh, or rather of Marx and he says you know Marx was wrong when he thought capitalism and kind of a free society would die because it immiserates the poor and they finally realize they're being ripped off so they stage a revolt he said actually what capitalism does is it gives off so much wealth that people take wealth and, um, you know, kind of expansion, innovation, upward mobility for granted, and they create a uh, cultural system that ends up destroying the possibility of, of capitalism and of innovation because the creative destruction that uh, capitalism is predicated upon becomes too much for people to deal with.
1: It, mm-hmm. right? I, I, yeah. I I had a big one well, yeah. from my last book. I was a huge Schumpeter phase yeah. and. One and I,
2: I think what we're seeing in American society right now, in a lot of ways, are people, and particularly younger people, who don't have the memory of socialism and of, uh, you know, of the Warsaw Pact countries and things like that and the Iron Curtain, think, well, it's like, you know, all you have to do is you can always squeeze a little bit more out of businesses or out of rich people or out of this, out of that, and that nobody ever, and nobody anywhere ever should be discomforted by anything in the world, and That's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it it probably is taking might be taking a form among libertarians where it's like, well, you know, we believe in individual rights and negative rights. But, you know, here's a bunch of positive liberties Mm -hmm. that we should also be pushing.
1: Yeah. I mean, mean, this is a familiar riff for my listeners, but the college students who think at elite universities, I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. kids. Paying their own way through community college or whatever, or even through elite colleges, but like the the well-to-do, the children, the new class in the Schumpeter, Schumpeterian sense, right. right? They go to the, you know Harvard or Brown or whatever, and they their food is paid for, their rent is paid mm-hmm. for, everything is paid for. All that is asking them is to have a good time and read some stuff and whatever, right? right? And they think they're independent, right? <laughs> you know, when in reality, right. they are the most dependent people in certain ways in all of the history of humanity. Um, And so I think there's a kind of utopianism that comes from thinking that the college experience can be extended on throughout your lifetime. And a lot of progressivism is that. It's just, you know, it's like when Nancy Pelosi says under Obamacare, um, it's about liberty because you no longer be job locked and you can now be a poet. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, It seems to me that that idea is, let me back up. Earlier in our earlier conversation when I was talking about how if Republicans or if conservatives give up this idea of defending the constitution and 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 notions of good character and all of these kinds of things, then no one will right, right. as an institution yeah. if libertarians give up <laughs> yeah. the argument about um fighting for individual liberty and that whatever government can give you, it can take right. away. If they, if they turn their backs on all that, that's a
2: huge problem. Yeah, I, I have to say I don't see that as like the, the coming wave or uh-huh. anything like that. I'm, I'm asking um, a yeah, question. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't um, and, you know, where I think we're in an interesting place in politics is that I think conservatives have a problem with young people in the sense that to the extent that they end up defending things, it's like they, you know, they have to defend the cake baker who is mm-hmm. homophobic, or, you know, and and they have the reasons. Like uh, typically, it's a religious thing, and you know, um, and it's just even, uh, you know, even younger Christians are like okay with gay marriage. So mm-hmm. it's like it's you know it becomes harder and harder, and you become. Kind of you know the remnant of like mm-hmm. this older America and it and it serves a, a a social function and whatnot, but it's it's hard to grow if you're doing that. The progressives are offering everything to everybody, and I think most people recognize pretty quickly that that's just like a load of crap and uh, you know Elizabeth Warren. It's, it's meaningful that the minute that she had to start actually explaining how she was going to pay for her programs, she started to tag right. the polls. So, you know, there's still a reality principle in place, even among younger people on the left. And I think what libertarians need to do it's in order to expand their base, because we're all like all of us are trying to win the next generation's hearts and minds and all of that, is that we need to kind of explain how... What we're doing is not a uh, a recipe for complete social dysfunction, Mm -hmm. um, or you know, or or dissipation, and also that there is a value in facing hardness in a a life that otherwise is pretty easy. I mean, I am like two generations away from ghettos. Mm -hmm. Um, My kids don't know the type of hard work I knew. I didn't know the hard work my parents knew, and you know you know, on and on. Um, And we need to have a cultural memory so that people are willing to say, "Okay, things are going to be tough for a while or there are going to be outcomes in the world that we can't remediate, whether it's through government or corporate policy or anything like that. Um, And I think one of the places where libertarians have done a poor job in general is kind of looking at the institutions of civil society Um, That actually are, you know, traditionally are the places that kind of help for a lot of that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, I want to pick up on that. But there's one point that I think we can all agree on is that whether you're a libertarian or a populist or conservative or whatever, is that cookies are good. And I want to talk to you about Mrs. Fields. (laughs) No, seriously, everyone is pro cookie, which is why when time is short, but the need to give gifts is high. The answer is the gift of cookies. And that's where Mrs. Fields comes in. When Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies 40 years ago, she won over cookie lovers everywhere with her gooey chocolate chip cookies, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and passion for sharing the joy of baked goods. Nowadays, you can have cookies sent right where you want them without visiting a bakery. With gourmet gift tins and baskets filled with fresh-baked cookies, you know that your order will arrive fresh and flavorful. It's true. We got a gift tin at uh, the Goldberg household and it was uh, fantastic I'm just sorry my daughter wasn't around to, or maybe I'm not uh, to Hoover them all down ordering is easy and they can ship your cookies anywhere across the country if you're ordering a, if you're ordering as a gift you can add a personal custom message company logo or family photo best of all mrs. fields orders a hundred percent customer satisfaction guarantee so to sweeten the deal our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter dingo. That's mrsfields m r s f i e l d s.com promo code dingo. You get 20% off any gift at mrsfields.com promo code dingo. mrsfields.com promo code dingo. D I N G O. Your cookies are on the way. We thank Mrs. Fields for sponsoring this episode of The Remnant. All right. So. Um,
2: that look, is. Can I comment on the ad?
1: As long as you don't disparage or, I'm not, No, yeah, I'm okay. just
2: going to say, I, uh, th- you know, cookies are good. I don't. I, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable with that as a universal statement. As a, really? Yeah. On what grounds? Uh, you know uh, carbs are you know carbs are one of the enemies uh-huh. that are
1: out there yeah. and
2: also uh, you know I guess cookies in moderation are good
1: right? all things in moderation okay yeah. right. uh, as you know as I, as I say about nationalism all poisons are determined by the dose that's true that's true um, i
2: I am uh, for the past three years I've Basically, been eating vegan, not out uh-huh. of any moral philosophy, but it allows me to eat more and not gain a lot of weight. Yeah. And so, like, cookies are, are a problem.
1: I understand that. You know? um, I, a few years ago, lost a whole bunch of weight because I went sort of no carb. Um, I've since found a lot of that weight. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, but it's I'm
2: amazing. Get, yeah. It keeps turning up. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, uh, but just to be clear, we are not saying anything. Deleterious or defamatory about, no, not Mrs. At all Fields about Mrs. Fields cookies. About Mrs. Fields
2: cookies, which I remember well. I, remember, I was living and working in New York when I think. All those shops it opened up, yeah. yeah. And it was like uh, she was in a death, uh, you know, it was like a, a mob war with David's cookies, if I there remember There was David's exactly.
1: cookies, and then there was also Famous Amos, Famous Amos, yeah. uh,
2: who I saw uh, peddling something on Shark Tank and he didn't get a deal. So Seriously? About Famous Amos, uh, he was like the, the Colonel Sanders. Like he apparently. Yeah. Sold Famous Amos in a deal that, like you know, got him a little bit of money and then, oh, like no. a lot of personal appearances. So he's he's trying for a second act.
1: So it's funny. I, and I have to give credit to Tim Carney who first pointed this out to me. But um, the guy who invented the cronut. Oh yeah, yeah. So he apparently. <laughs> Tim was making this point, which I made, but I didn't have the example of the cronut, (laughs) about how annoyed he gets when people talk about how, when rich people talk about how they need, now I'm going to give back. Yeah. Right. And uh, so he gave a bunch of money to charity. Good for him, and you should give money to charity. That's a good thing. But like, it completely misses the point of how uh, market exchange works, right? He didn't take from society, he gave us the cronut, (laughs) you know? And, um, uh and it sort of gets to you know the um oh god I can't remember what we were talking about um Schumpeter. no long before it was in the first podcast um eh, it doesn't I, I'm getting a contact high from your editorial bullpen I understand um uh, so I don't want, I, I know I just dragged us out of the weeds but I do want to come back to sort of one yeah, thing no, right please. so um uh you're
2: never going to hear a libertarian say no let's get out of the weeds
1: um that's right uh I'm the intellectual weeds yes. though um the um as I, as we discussed before i'm really more and more and more sympathetic to notions of federalism mm-hmm. and, and you use this phrase uh utopia of utopias right. i don't like the word utopia but right. yeah, you know but but you're just being rhetorical yes. there so um where let's just stipulate mm-hmm. uh, jim crow slavery these things yeah. are bad can't right. have them back yeah, whatever yeah. where do you draw the line about how strict a local community can be, yeah. without inviting federal intervention.
2: That is, you know, that's a great question. And again, I'm, I think you're know, part of this has less to do about anything going on in the world, and it's more you, you, you know, if you're in a movement for a long time, you reach a certain age in your life, and you start, you know, examining the model that mm-hmm. you've been you've been using or the lens to interpret yeah. all of this stuff. I think that's a great question because, on a certain level, one of my problems with federalism or the idea that you have different levels of government that cover different things. One, one great thing about them is that they're in tension with one another, right. so that they're kind of fighting against each other. And I think that's good to disperse and decentralize power in general and give people more options. But another part of me is like, well, it's not, you know, I don't want to, f- you know, like, is federalism good if it means that there's a town in, somewhere? And I'll say, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so I'll say a town in New Jersey that has re-legalized slavery or, mm-hmm. or de jure segregation like that doesn't make sense, right? Or no, but but, but it? does it does it. No, mean, it doesn't like, make no. sense. and but this is when when do you get to that moment? And I'm a big fan of um, uh, Hirschman's Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, mm-hmm. uh, which um, where uh, which is subtitled something like um, you know how uh, how uh, people deal with states, firms, and something else in decline. Like he's talking about. What happens when you're in, in an organization, whether whether it's a business or a, a country or a, a society, that is in decline? How do you how do you deal with that? And like one way you do it is through loyalty, where you just say, oh, "Screw it, I'm you know I'm just signing up for this and I'll do whatever they want." Others you use voice, you use um, reform methods within the system, or exit, which you you just leave and you either start your own business or your own colony or your own country or whatever. Um, you know, and and those are pretty good fixes, right? Mm-hmm. It gives you a lot of ability. Um, and I'm trying to think of like a concrete example where I would say, okay, the Fed should come in, or the state should come in on a locality, or a locality, or the state should push back against the state. I think Trump is doing something interesting when he is pushing to invalidate. If I, I think I'm getting this right, to invalidate California's ability to pass emission standards. Right. You know, so he's saying. You know, the laboratories of democracy stop when we're talking about, um, you know, uh, emissions uh, systems on cars that effectively set a national standard. That's kind of an interesting question Mm -hmm. from a libertarian point of view, from many points of view. Um, And I don't know exactly how I feel about that. Prohibition, you know, what's weird about that is like it, it returned, the end of prohibition returned uh... thanks to state control and you had oklahoma which i think only uh... uh allowed alcohol in nineteen fifty eight mississippi officially only overturned prohibition in nineteen sixty six i guess i could live with that mm-hmm. I could live with you know and i could live with that for pot legalization i don't know and i i'm pro choice i don't know if i would live with that in terms of abortion because i think that might be a more basic right and you know i i realize we disagree about you know mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad but i'm saying like You know, at what point to me, I want to say all rights, you know, and not a right to, you know, have a cronut that Mm -hmm. tastes great and doesn't make you fat. Mm -hmm. Not that kind of right, but like the ability to do what you want, like. You know, use certain types of intoxicants or have certain medical procedures, like, God, that's kind of universal. Like, I don't know that I would want to live in a locality or a state that didn't allow that or a country. But you wouldn't have to, right? No, I agree. So this, you know, and again, I I mean, I moved back to New York after 30 years away. And it's like, you know, I'm paying much more in taxes. I'm paying much more in kind of restrictions on certain things I can do because overall, the package of options and the ambiance and everything is better. Um, so I don't know that I want to say, like, well, New York isn't allowed to charge this kind of tax or do this kind of thing because we should give different places as much possibility and as much leeway to, to either make a great place or a, a crappy place.
1: Yeah. So it's funny that you bring up the California thing because I'm struggling with that one, too. Yeah. Um, but it does. You, you mentioned before how libertarians are starting to think about how corporate power in the 21st mm-hmm. century might be a bigger problem.
2: I don't think so, personally, but I I do think there are moments where, like, you know, we need to uh, – Hayek at some point and, you know, his terrible English, which I'm going to mangle even more, said something like you you have to update all of the arguments and make, you know, the uh, formation of a free society a a, a courageous and an exciting adventure or something Mm -hmm. like I think we need to do that um, because the arguments – that people like Elizabeth Warren are pushing against Facebook and, and Twitter and YouTube and whatnot are absolutely rooted in, you know, Louis Brandeis's stupid ideas from the progressive era. But we're in a different world and we need to adapt our arguments to the current moment.
1: Yeah. So the, the reason I brought it up, though, was um, um, the California thing mm-hmm. – feels reminiscent to the power that sort of crony capitalist railroads had in the 19th century, right, right where they they had a vested interest in imposing standards across the entire country for the good of, you know, right. I mean, um, and I, I don't want to go all Gabe Colco, but, yeah, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. But there's something to all yeah, of that. Yeah. And um, so I'm more sympathetic to California wanting to do that um, and if it makes it more difficult for car dealers or car or owners, manufacturers... Everybody. Yeah. It, but yeah. Okay. You know... Um, I
2: agree in, in a large sense. And there was a great book that was written by a woman named Erica Greider, who's a journalist in Texas. Um, and it was a study, and I'm blanking on the title, it was something like, uh, you know, but uh, it was about California versus Texas Mm -hmm. as kind of, broadly speaking, models of governance. In California, you had high taxes and the promise of high level of, of services. In Texas, you had low regulation and a promise of low social services. And it's kind of like, you know, the beauty of America in a way is that, you know, for in, in the largest sense possible, people can choose. Mm-hmm. And then you might choose something like Colorado or Arizona or someplace else that's somewhere in the middle. And that goes back to the utopia of utopias. I mean, clearly, I think, and actually, I realize most people don't agree with me. I, I took it for granted that they would, that when you have, like, if you have 15 choices... That's much better than having one choice. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you only have one choice, it's not a choice. It's right. just reality, right? Not everybody agrees with that, but I think one of the things that is good about America and what has been good about the past 25 years, um, and this isn't because of the government per se, it's partly the government, it's partly uh, civil society, technology, rising levels of wealth and education. We have more options available. Like you can live more how you want to uh, and and pick and choose and move from one side to another and things like that and you know I think that's good. Yeah, so it seems to be
1: the part of the problem with the phrasing of all this is that if you want the federal government out of your business s- state and local government might have to get a little bit more into it. Right. And if that but the benefit of doing that is that um you actually have more chance of being heard by a politician close to home than yeah, you do one far away.
2: Although, and this I'll just, you know, this is partly my thinking on a lot of this stuff is tempered by the fact I lived either part-time or full-time from about 98, or actually if, if you count Huntsville, from 96 until 2018 um, in small towns mm-hmm. in Texas and in, in Ohio. And, you know, there is a local tyranny that is so much worse because it, you know, it can be decided by like 50 people Mm -hmm. and they can run everything. You know, the flip side of it is so it's much more local and you see them when you go shopping in Kroger, Mm -hmm. you know, the people who are destroying your business or making your life miserable. Um, By the same token, because it's a smaller unit uh, jurisdiction, you can move more easily. And also... The
1: more power that they have, the more people in a local community will take an interest in local politics over national politics, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It, one of the reasons why you have local tyrannies is these guys have so little power that they can manage their their grift right. and, and their rent seeking um, pretty well. When everybody realizes, like, holy crap, re- voting for president really won't affect my life, but voting for mayor will... Yeah more people will turn out to vote for mayor.
2: I guess, you know what, uh, I realize now part of what, um, and, I, you know, I'm not pretending to be a systematic thinker or a deep thinker, certainly. Uh, and for me, one of the reasons I'm libertarian is, like, I don't want to shift my politics from the federal level to the local level. Like, what I want to do is take the amount of energy that I have to spend on politics and shrink it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I want I want less government at every.
0: And I, I, under, I yeah. look, at it, and that's a reasonable yeah.
1: position to take, and well, I probably and, do yeah. too. But at yeah. the same time, if you don't want a monarchical president, right? Stop sending power to Washington, because and if you don't want ugly yeah. politics where politics consumes everything, stop making the presidential election or the congressional election at the yeah, federal yeah. level as
2: important as it is. I agree with that. Yeah.
1: Um, Anyway, and so in a
2: weird way, I would argue, even as government gets bigger and bigger, I think this is happening or what you, what you are seeing in national politics in the book that Matt Welch and I co-wrote seven years ago, eight years ago, the Declaration of Independence started with the insight that um, fewer and fewer people are identifying as either Republican or Democrat right um, you know, and then we we can have an argument about whether or not there are actual independents or is that kind of a fraud, but there's no question that the parties are smaller than they were. Uh, we talked in our previous hour about uh, you were talking about how they are less powerful than mm-hmm. they used to be. It doesn't mean politics have shrunk. But it, it's I, I see in the evacuation of political identity as the first thing that people say about themselves. I see that as a promising sign. What worries me currently, and this is something that Trump has managed to do, you know, um, he has turned ev- everything is now political. Like every utterance, and like when he you know, the NFL has become political. Pardoning uh, turkeys know. has become Yeah, whatever. absolutely. Yeah. You know, and then and, you know, on the progressive left in general, never had a problem with that because right. they believe that everything is political and must and always will be. I believe that it often is. And, you know, that's what we need to identify and attack and get rid of. But Trump, in a way, if I have a the strongest critique I have of him is that he has transformed the government and the presidency into something that everybody has to care about every second of the day and yep. every utterance he's hyper politicized stuff and god that's a that's a terrible world to live in because politics is about you know 51 percent of people getting to tell everybody else how to live and like i want to shrink the areas of life where that happens to the absolute smallest amount
1: I, in general i'm in agreement with
2: that um
1: all right um not to shut this down. But Can we
2: talk about Mrs. F- what is your favorite uh, cookie? Then, at Mrs. F- I'm giving you a bonus ad here. I appreciate
1: gonna... that. Um, you know, uh, I this is a bone of contention in the Goldberg household. I am more of a oatmeal raisin guy than I am a oh, chocolate okay. chip no, that's cookie guy. Yeah. A, a f- I did not w- see that with of. the exception of a freshly like out of the oven hot chocolate chip yeah. cookie is one of the greatest things that God has ever created. Okay. But one should expose oneself. I think to those with with limited, on rare occasions. Um, well,
2: and an oatmeal raisin cookie is almost a health food, really. I, that, that's all. what I keep telling yeah. myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure.
1: Um, so we never finished. You still haven't seen The
2: Mandalorian. I am not going to see The Mandalorian. I, um, I can remember, God, it's, I guess, like an early memory, although I don't think I was that young. But. I can remember waiting in line in movie theaters. This would have, I think I ended up seeing it in Ocean County, New Jersey. Uh, it was quite a hike. Like, when Star Wars came out and you had to go to the theater and you couldn't buy tickets ahead of time yeah, yeah, or online yeah. or anything like that, and you would just stand in line until the next show and hopefully you would get to see it. And I was the Seaview Square Mall in, like, Ocean Township, New Jersey. And uh, there was a rainstorm and you stayed with it, et cetera. And, like, I loved... Star Wars early on and as a kid and I am am always amazed by these weird fictional universes. Uh, Star Star Trek is another one where it mm-hmm. just creates fan communities. Yeah. And people use this imagined world to talk through all sorts of things to make connections to have fun. I which I all love that, but the specifics of this Star Wars universe now, I am just kind of done with. Uh-huh. So I don't know about The Mandalorian. I mean, I keep seeing the pictures of baby Yoda and yeah. I'm kind of like, is it like tiny tunes but for Star Wars? Or no, 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 it's actually
1: much much grimmer and darker. It's okay. it's, it's 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 very much it, I mean it's a total rip off of a bunch of west western yeah. cowboy movie kind of motifs right. and
2: which makes a certain amount of sense since it, I mean the original Star Wars well, I guess it was a rip off of Flash Gordon which in itself traded in a lot of western tropes of,
1: Right. Um yeah. but uh it's the first thing in the Star Wars universe I've seen in a long time that um, I actually liked. And you were saying I, before that yeah,
2: you— well, I'm a fan of the second trilogy. Like, for me, what it was is I liked the first Star Wars. Um, the Empire Strikes Back, I was like, okay, it's pretty good. It just stops. It doesn't really end. Uh, you know, it, they, they you know, have to save something for the third movie. The acting is really bad, I think. Uh, the return of the Jedi or whatever is awful. I mean, it's just a terrible movie. I hated the Ewoks, um, and then. The but Phantom you liked Menace. Jar Jar Binks. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, it's it's and also what is weird about that? I guess it's the Phantom Menace is just filled with these repugnant old racial and ethnic stereotypes. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And it's like kind of George Lucas, like, what are you thinking? And, yeah. I, and I'm always I'm kind of amazed by him when you look at his filmography. He has you know THX 1138, which is yeah. a, a mediocre dystopian story. Uh, he has American Graffiti, which is a phenomenal work. And when you look at it now, it's fascinating, you know, because we're in the twilight of the baby boom generation. So I'm interested in these mm-hmm. kinds of topics. That movie came out in the early mid 70s and it's a total nostalgia act. And the totally. baby boomers were nostalg nostalgizing their childhood yeah. while they were in their early 20s. I yeah. mean, like, what's going on? I mean, with happy that? days. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. All of that stuff. And like, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me. And like. Uh, you know, Sha Na appeared at Woodstock. I mean, yeah. what the hell is going on? Part this of the, is a, it's it's a weird generation, and I'm kind of interested to see how all of this plays out. But George Lucas then does like Howard the Duck, which is awful, which is really um, awful. You know, and the Phantom Menace and the Willow Phantom, was uh, awful. Yeah, the, um, uh, the, you know, I kind of like um, I like the second trilogy, and one of the things uh, I you know one of one of the things I liked about it was like okay, you know, it's going to end with. Uh, Anakin becoming uh, Darth Vader, right? And it's like, how are you going to get there? And it's like, I would have loved to have seen, you know, the the transcontinental railroad or the St. Louis Arch <laughs> being built, like, because you know where they got to go, and like, are they going to get? It's, yeah. it's like Rachel Ray's thirty minute meals. Like, is she going to plate the, you know, is yeah, she yeah. going to plate the chicken fricassee in time or not? It's for me that was an interesting exercise.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I see. I, I think one of the reasons why, as a as a libertarian, you should like it is because. <laughs> It turns out that the central issue of politics at the time were trade disputes. Yeah. No, and the Jedis doesn't. are going out yeah. trying to like fix trade disagreements. But the Jedi you
2: know? are kind of sketchy on that, right? Like, you know, because they're also like I realize more and more like I, I'm a uh, – well, you know, it's not like the empire is a good thing. But like I, I become more and more mired in class analysis because as I went to grad school for literature – in the late 80s through the mid 90s and everything was race, class, and gender but right. nobody ever talked about class because right. especially in academia nobody ever wants to cop to being poor or having been poor have bad taste um, and the Jedi are a little bit uh, they are they're too much like oh you know we are a long tradition blah 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 and like you can't you can't simply join like you can't work out and join us like you right. have to be born into the order. No, no, there's like some that. definitely some noble blood like, stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean this is you know the old Batman Superman thing. It's yeah, like, even though Batman is a rich guy, he worked for it. Where Superman is born that way. And I'm always on the side of, you know, I, I'm I'm about two seconds away from saying like Darth Vader is obviously the hero. Because <laughs> he made himself, you know, he made himself into, uh, you know, what he became. I, I you know, when I watch The Incredibles. Uh, what's his name? Syndrome, the uh-huh. obviously the hero, because he's not born with any powers and he creates them. Sid from the original Toy Story, obviously the hero. Uh-huh. You know, because he takes mass-produced culture and then re—you uh, know—re-jiggers it to his own desiring needs. I, that's the hero, always. Yeah. Uh, now
1: your, your your romanticism is coming out, um, but uh, <laughs> the thing you got to grapple with, and I, I got to credit Jonathan last. He was really the guy yeah. who focused it for me is there a very strong case that the droids are slaves just straight up slaves right and they haven't and if you if you look for the evidence it's you know they actually in the, the, the solo movie they made a joke about it but they're right. straight up slaves, and they they, they kill them. And these yeah. are sentient beings right, yeah. who have emotions. They yeah. even have a religion. At one point, C three PO says thank the Maker, like he's got yeah. a god, and they're perfectly fine flipping their off switch, blowing them up. There's no moral consequence to killing these things, and they even call their humans master. I mean, right. they are slaves,
2: and um, I got you know there was a it was a bad article. Well, this is one of the reasons why Star Wars is kind of fascinating because it allows. You know, it it gives you a space to have these kinds of arguments, right. where you, you know it's not you're not going to punch each other out at the end of them.
1: Right. No, that's right. And, um, but I thought you because we were talking before, you know, when we were doing the weighty issues before we started, you're talking about how you liked the legislative battles with Judge Banks oh, as a absolutely. senator. Oh,
2: absolutely. Now I would watch if there was a Star Wars C-SPAN. I would I would be watching that for hours. My, I love C-SPAN, and I would love you know the you know the, the when somebody you know with a lizard face or something gets up and talks about the need to have stop signs on endor or whatever <laughs> like, yeah of course of See, course th- like please walk through the special order speeches who's the Newt gingrich of yeah. the intergalactic congress or senate
0: or whatever uh, you know? he's
1: the emperor um, but uh, my um my thing like that is uh, i love the first Five to fifteen minutes of zombie movies, mm-hmm. where you see the society actually responding yeah. to how it works. Yeah, yeah. I find it gets really tedious after a while. Just oh, just stab yeah. a zombie in the head, or oh my right. gosh, he didn't tell us he was bit and he turns into a zombie and now yeah. he's gonna kill us all. Those tropes we've seen a million times. But I love that first fifteen minutes where like the newscasters don't know how to yeah. like
2: talk about what's going on and all that uh, kind of wait, stuff. Uh, you must be a fan of the Omega band? Or have you seen that with Charlton Heston? Oh, yeah. So, yeah sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. And it's like I love the movies when they show the breakdown of society yeah, and like, that's what the best happens, part. et cetera. And then, yeah, unfortunately, then it gets, it gets less interesting as any of those scenarios Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's why I like, what was the Will Smith one, I Am Legend? Yeah. The beginning yeah. of it was actually great, yeah. you know, and then it just got turned into a video game. Yeah,
2: yeah. And uh, I, I also, I love um, Hollywood depictions of hippies and like the idea of in The Omega Man, you know, it's just basically the newscaster becomes, you know, like the leader. He's Charles Manson, yeah, and, yeah. mixed with Timothy Leary. And he's trying to put the old hatreds behind us. And it's kind of, uh, it's it's hilarious. Um, did you watch, and I realize I'm extending oh, this fine. past your cookie break about uh-huh. that, but um, did you watch Man in the High Castle? Yes, I did. Yeah, now I thought that was a fantastically... Uh, rendered alternative universe, the uh. foregrounds, you know, it, in season three, they really played up the idea of the resistance and, you know, Trump resistance and all of that. I can take or leave that, but I thought that was a fantastic meditation on, um, okay, you know what, we actually have a bunch of alternative timelines going on. And when right. we can opt in and out, there's limits to them and everything. And I thought that was really extremely well done. I'm a huge Philip K. Dick fan and what i liked about his books though, were almost always disappointing They're yes like outlines for novels not novels themselves this really filled that in and it was a kind of exquisite uh, final season yeah
1: i mean you're talking about how they tried to stick the landing with darth or with anakin becoming darth yeah. vader figuring out how to f- explain who the man in the high castle was was a really difficult yeah. thing for yeah. the tv show and i thought they did a great job in the first couple seasons him ultimately turning into basically Rod Serling under duress yeah, was a bit yeah, of a problem. Yeah, um, I, I,
2: I agree. That was not quite up to uh, snuff. But overall, and I I thought the idea, and again, this goes back to me, and I realize it's a uh, 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 territory of some dispute between us. The idea of that there, you know, is a multi, like not a multiverse, Uh. not a Rick and Morty multiverse, but, you know, that there are many, many alternatives to what we do now and what we can be doing in the future and that we can retroactively change the past. Somebody like T.S. Eliot created, you know, just happened to create the the literary tradition of which he was the perfect mid 20th century exemplar of. Mm -hmm. uh, The metaphysical poets were not considered gigantic before Eliot kind of cast back and, like, drew a line of an apostolic succession from these guys to him. Um, and I think we do all do a variation of that. And kind of being conscious of that and playing with that is really meaningful. Um, the New York Times is doing a terrible job, I think, with the 1619 mm-hmm. Project. Or, yeah, the 1619 project. Um, but that's one way of doing it. Another way, I, and one that is more near and dear to my heart, is looking at Roger Williams, who was one of the an uh, early um, figure, of religious dissenter in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. What would happen if everything in America had kind of followed his? He mm-hmm. he traded with the Indians. He bought property. He created Providence, and then got the charter for Rhode Island. Um, you know, like we could have a very different America if we had followed Roger Williams' America. And what can we incorporate from that into contemporary times? Um, I think about America more. My story of America really is an immigrant story from mm-hmm. the mid-19th century or mid-19-teens. Uh, and, you know, but we're constantly changing our timelines by how we talk about the past, what we discover in the past, and then how that affects what we do in the future.
1: No, no, I agree with yeah. a lot of that. I, I'm, I'm and i think
2: so rab amari is trying to do something like that and it's it's fascinating to me you know that a guy who's what a, an iranian immigrant who's a recent convert to catholicism is now is telling america okay this is how it's going to be yeah. and in a weird way um that's the most american thing you could be doing yeah. i mean, it's so, like fantastic but
1: i have been fascinated by this something similar to this for a very long time which is um you the, Past can change the future mm-hmm. because, um, and the present can change the past. Mm-hmm. So the example I often use is that, you know, for most of our lives, um, was it 1922 when the House of Saud and the Wahhabis take right. over Saudi Arabia, yeah, yeah. really marginally important date, right? But 1917 when the Bolsheviks stake are hugely important, yeah. right? With the fall of the Soviet Union, 1917 becomes less and less relevant, right? right? Yeah, and with 9/11, all of a sudden. 1922 yeah. seemed hugely important. Right. And the way we sort of retroactively pick up on these previous timelines and say, right. holy crap, we were missing the plot yeah, yeah. is really kind of fascinating. And what
2: plots are we missing now? You know, speaking right. of Islamic terrorism like or uh, Islamism, like a lot of people say, 1979 was a big year because of the Iranian revolution. Right. But then there was the siege of Mecca a few months before that where a bunch of Islamic radicals seized Mecca and ended up being Blown away by French yeah. uh, commandos right. at the behest of the Saudi government, and that's when the Saudi government made the deal to Islamic people or Islamic to the, fundamentalists to, the jihad- yeah, to yeah. say, "Go, here's money to go spread it, you know, out around the world. Just don't come back here, right? Um, you know." And so, like, our eye was on the wrong ball in yeah. 1979 in, in, in a profound way. Yeah,
1: um, and so this, this sort of gets at the part of my we on full Circle, yeah. we talked a lot about Holly and Sorab and, yeah. and, and the sort of new what Rubio calls common good capitalism, right. which makes me kind of want to retch. But um, um, the big part of the argument for using how libertarians are being tested by Trump and mm-hmm. the China trade stuff, big part of the argument about why we need to reinvent a lot of our institutional approaches to Mm -hmm. economics is because China's eaten our lunch and China hasn't... We were told China was going to get free as it got rich, and it hasn't, right? Uh, Yes
2: and no. Yes, I agree. I'm using shorthand. uh, This is the argument that they use, right? right.
1: And since it hasn't happened, and now they're a global competitor and threat, we have a blah, blah. And my position on that is always not yet, right? Right. I mean, it seems to me it is not entirely obvious that even if they do terrible, evil, horrible things in Hong Kong, that the fact that they did those terrible, horrible things in Hong Kong won't have a bizarre, unexpected catalytic effect on mainland China. Right. And um, you ever read, it's one of my favorite essays, Orwell he wrote an essay called Second Thoughts on James Burnham? No, it I, yeah, sounds should, fascinating. Oh, you should read it. Uh, uh, really it a, uh, uh, it's, it's a short yeah. read and it's brilliant. And part of the point he make in the course of telling this, uh, critiquing Burnham, who he was obsessed with. Right. Um, and who
2: was an early... Early figure of National Review. Early figure oh, right. of National right. Review. Right. And right. Who then became a great critic of bureaucracy,
1: right? Yeah, and yeah. actually Orwell gets a lot of his ideas for 1984 right. from Burnham's stuff about the managerial yeah. class. And Burnham was, of course, a schumpeter K. So right. we're really yeah, just yeah. going around the horn here. Yeah. And, um, uh, but he makes this point that among intellectuals in England during World War II, every single time the Germans had a v- victory... The intellectual classes, to, oh, oh crap, we're going to lose the war, right, right. right? They do these straight line projections from the moment they're yeah. in. But if you ask the average English guy in the street, they're like, yeah, we're going to oh, win, right. you know? Oh yeah, no, it's yeah, too yeah. bad about Tobruk, but we're going to yeah, win, yeah. right? That kind of thing. And he he makes this point as part of a criticism about Burnham that um, straight line projections from the current moment are ultimately a form of power worship because you mm-hmm. can't imagine the powerful losing what they've gained right. at any given moment. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a different orientation towards China or anything like that. It's just not obvious to me that if you create four, five 500 million middle class people, right. that over time,
0: yeah. Yeah. And freedom if, is
2: going to creep up, creep up on you. I, I think that that's absolutely true. And that, you know, in one way, the model to think about China is the way... Uh, You know, at the end of the 80s, everybody was enthralled to the idea that we'd all be speaking Japanese, et cetera, or Russian or whatever. And like within a couple of years, those predictions, you know... Uh, sadly, um, uh, what's her name? Condoleezza Rice had to get a whole new line of work. She had been a Sovietologist.
1: My wife that. got a master's from CIS in uh, Soviet politics the year the Soviet Union yeah, broke I up. Mean, that's <laughs> tough.
2: But, but Japan disappeared yeah. as like the, you know, the the little engine that was going to take over all of America. I mean, within a couple of uh, within a year, they were selling Rockefeller Center at a loss, et cetera. Right and i this is not to make light of all of the horrific abuses that are going on in china i was just reading about in Uyghur communities yeah. where um the state is sending men to sleep in the beds of the of the husbands who they put in concentration camps i mean it's unfathomable but i agree you know when you when you raise hundreds of millions of people to middle class status you are not they're not going to they're not going to go along and they're not going to go along very long. And I think, you know, Milton Friedman had said this when Tiananmen Square happened, uh, that, you know, this made total sense that they had liberalized their economy. People got some money in their pockets and they started lobbying for political freedom. I think we're seeing something like that again. And regardless of what happens in Hong Kong, you you just you know, once people get a little bit of money and a taste of freedom and also they can leave, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's China, it, the idea, uh, the defeatism on the uh, on the left, or rather on the right, is really stunning to me. And this this is a weird thing about conservatives, or certain types of conservatives, they have so quickly given up belief that they're that the system that kind of made them, you know, they just believe that it's dead and done you know, done for or yeah. something. It's odd.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, it, it, it's very un burkean right? and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the part of Burke's Point is that examples the school of mankind, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes the whole point of making mistakes is you learn from them. And under Obama, I always used to say, "Look, have a little confidence that our ideas—if you actually believe our ideas yeah. are right—history will prove our ideas yeah. are right." And um, and instead, the idea is, is no, our ideas didn't defeat Obama, and they almost they wouldn't defeat Hillary, but this this stuff will. And I just think it's a it's a it's a kind of
2: surrender. I agree, and I think you know. Possibly, I would say the the epistemic problem is, and I, I actually I don't know if it's the first thing or the second thing or whatever, but that somewhere in the twenty first century, which clearly is both in a way is a world of wonders that is mm-hmm. unimaginable. I was born in nineteen sixty three, and like you know, it's 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 like incredible what's going on. Um, on another level, it's a deeply disappointing future. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just not working out the way it was, but. Um, the idea that this stuff is all going to go away because of one or two elections, like the, I think one of the fundamental flaws is that somewhere in the nineties there was this great moment, and you know Bill Clinton said that of big government is over. People evacuated politics as the primary source of meaning in their lives and mm-hmm. identity, and we're back to that now. And that's never a good thing. That's a hallmark of totalitarian states, of authoritarian states, and of I think of cultures that are kind of on their heels. Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know. The more that we can get on with the spaces where you can actually do stuff and innovate and try things, the better. And I am particularly worried on the left. uh, Virginia Postrel had written about this in the in the '90s, but about how environmentalism Mm -hmm. was the new kind of socialism. Not that it was socialistic, but that it becomes something where everything is politicized, and you get to a point now where it's like you know every soda straw that you use, you're either on the side of humanity or not. And that kind of hyper-politicization is a sign that something is wrong, but it also creates a, um, a momentum that just makes things worse and worse. Yeah. And that that's really, I think, ultimately is the enemy of, you know, it, you know uh, that everything is political. And this is where Trump cro- is in no way conservative, is in certainly no way libertarian, and is, you know, part of the problem. Which is much bigger than right and left at this point.
1: No, I agree with that. And that's why I tweet so much about dogs. (laughs) Because they're Uh, immune to politics.
2: Yes, that's right. Although, you know, wasn't the uh, Conan the dog, you know, was just trotted out? uh, Yeah, but he doesn't care. She
1: she. she well, no, the, I, we can't get it. We don't know. We, right? we need a straight we, answer on this. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: I'm, I'm willing to bet that uh, Conan is, uh, like many dogs I've seen, is kind of gender fluid.
1: Yeah, All right. maybe it'll hold a story hour in Sacramento. <laughs> 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 All right, Nick Gillespie, thanks so much for doing this.
0: She packed my bags
2: last night, pre-flight.
0: Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high. As a kite by then. Oh, I miss the earth so much. I miss
2: my wife. Such a tireless flight. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The to touchdown brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket Man burning out his fuse out here alone. All right, uh, now uh, take okay. it away, yep. sir.
1: Okay, so how am I
0: going to do this? Okay.